We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 today and kind of continuing our study of Romans. But we're in this series called The Four Pillars of Financial Strength. And uh, before we kind of get rolling, I just wanted to say that uh, if I could just make an appeal to the church family that, you know, the uh, commissioning service we're having tonight at seven over in the children's chapel. Uh, man, it's such a sweet time in the life of the church. And I just think it's so important for the church to understand, you know, like, you know, how is leadership structured? How is it put together? And, you know, why do we do church the way we do? And there'll be a few minutes that we'll kind of talk about what does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to be a deacon? What does it mean to be a minister? You know, we'll talk about all those things. And so I just think it's very, very, very healthy for people to kind of be in on that. And so we'd love for you to be there tonight at seven. Uh, hey, you might have heard about this. There's a new shopping shocking, shopping craze that has struck America. <clears throat> there are just lines in stores. There's mayhem everywhere, exorbitant prices. And it's not a new iPhone. It's not a new virtual reality headset. It's a cup, all right? It is this, the Stanley Cup, all right? Uh, the Stanley Corporation, you know, the guys that made my dad's thermos, they introduced a new line of insulated cups and they retail for $20 to $60. These cups have gotten 65 million views on TikTok. And uh, so many people want them so bad, the prices are skyrocketing. There's a cup that's a watermelon moonshine cup. An average resale price on eBay, $215 for a cup. <laughs> All right, listen to this though. They, they got a winter pink Starbucks collaboration cup, you know, free coffee from Starbucks, something like that. You can get that on eBay. You have to pay $400 to get that cup on eBay. I was working out yesterday and this girl had one kind of sitting in a cup holder behind one of the weight machines. And I thought, you know, I could snatch that thing. I bet I could beat her to the parking lot. <laughs> I could get 400 bucks really, really fast. And uh, in LA, uh, people are camping outside of stores like Target just to get their hands on one of the limited editions. And shelves filled with cups are wiped out. Fights have broken out. Shouting matches have erupted in the department stores. One man in California, he jumped over the counter to steal a box of pink Stanley cups and he ran for the door. Fortunately, he was tackled, but not by store security, but by furious shoppers. <laughs> Hell hath no fury like a soccer mom cheated out of her Stanley Cup. I'm just telling you right now. I can just see the guy telling the police, you mean to tell me, bro, you got taken out by a bunch of ladies? He's like, hey, that iPhone 15 with the titanium, man, they don't play. You know what I'm saying? They're beating me with that thing. The Advertising Specialty Institute declared that the Stanley Cup is, I'm quoting here, the most coveted product of 2023. I never cease to be amazed at the power of covetousness. James chapter four, James wrote this. What leads to the unending quarrels and conflicts among you? Do they not come from your desires that wage war in your body? Man, isn't that awesome how he says that? Your desires that wage war in your body, fighting for control over you. You are jealous and covet what others have and your lust goes unfulfilled, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain the object of your envy, so you fight and you battle. You know, Dave Ramsey is a financial counselor and millions of people listen to him every day on his radio broadcast. He was asked one time, what is the most important financial principle that you would try to teach anyone who's trying to learn the principles of financial strength and freedom? And he said, uh, without even hesitation, he said, contentment, contentment. When this concept is working, all the other financial concepts work, but when contentment is not working, none of the other concepts work. 
The apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said, godliness with contentment brings great profit. That word great there is the word mega in our English language. And it means colossal or huge. And so what Paul is saying here is that if by some means you could become content, you would profit from it tremendously. And so last week we talked about the pillars of financial freedom. We said number one was this pillar of uh, freedom, all right? And we talked a little bit about being free from debt. And today, our second pillar of financial strength is this whole idea of contentment. Okay, got to get that going out there. There we go. (laughs) All right, contentment. Now, if you were an ordinary Roman citizen back in the days when Paul wrote this letter, life was so unfair. The Roman government, they taxed every aspect of life. Paying taxes required one-third of like the common man's income. And the Roman government tax policy was so corrupt and so overbearing, it was making the lives of the ordinary working men and women of the Roman Empire immeasurable. Tax laws benefited the wealthy. I know you're shocked by this, but the wealthy didn't pay taxes. And the common people, they were justifiably angry because, you know, they're like, hey, we want more. We want more for ourselves. We want more money. Inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul tells the Christians there in Rome simply and directly, hey, I know, I know how you feel, but you need to pay your taxes. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 5. He says, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, because you might be punished for it, but also for conscience sake. For because this, you also pay taxes. For they, the government, they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. And in that context there, talking about taxes, the Holy Spirit moves Paul to begin tackling a much larger subject and that's money and material possessions. You see how the Bible has 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 on money and possessions. What that tells me is that our Father in heaven desperately wants you and me to be financially strong, to be financially at peace. Look at verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Owe no one anything is in the present imperative, which means don't go on and on and on owing another person. And so the warning of God's word is that debt has the awesome power to deprive you of your freedom, which we talked about last week. Proverbs 22, 7, Solomon said, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. Now look at verse 9 and 10. He says, for the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, they're all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice right there in that short list, Paul mentions five of the 10 commandments. And it's interesting to notice that four of the commandments have to do with deliberate actions, but one of those commandments has to do with our inner attitude. And notice that, covetousness underlies those other four commandments. Why do we lie? So often it's because we covet something we don't have and we lie to get it or we lie to get the money to get it. Why do we commit adultery? We covet someone's, someone that we're not married to. We want a sexual relationship with that person. 
Why do we murder? People covet things and they get angry when someone prevents them from getting what they want. At least that's what James said in James chapter four. Why do we steal? We covet the material possessions someone else has and so we take them from them. And so what is contentment? I love this definition. This is a Puritan pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs. He said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I really think about it. Just take a moment and really look at that definition for a moment. That gracious frame of spirit that delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. No matter what your life might look look like right now, God, I believe you have given me your very best. You're meeting my needs. So four principles here today I want us to tackle. Number one is this. We have to concede that we can't be content, all right? I know that sounds kind of of different to say that, but we have to really have to make that concession. Like, I can't do it. There's a man named Daniel Gilbert. Uh, He's a Harvard psychologist. And he wanted to study the relationship between money and happiness. And so he went all around the globe giving surveys to different ethnic groups and people like that all over the world. And he was asking them, how do you feel about your life? And Maasai cattle herders in the deserts of Kenya, they live without electricity. They live without running water. They make utensils from cow bones. Uh, they, They use cow hides for bedding and for clothing. Their houses are made of a mixture of of clay and cow dung, you know, and that's what they use to kind of put covering on their houses. And he discovered that the Maasai cattle herders of Kenya are just as happy as the millionaires of the United States of America. Isn't that incredible? You know, Paul set out to travel the world to proclaim the message of God's salvation through Jesus. He was robbed. He was beaten. He had to cross deserts. He had to cross dangerous rivers. He had to cross oceans. He was shipwrecked. He had to cross mountain ranges. He was cold. He was hungry, he says. In his 35-year ministry, he was arrested three times, spent five years in prison, and yet he wrote this from prison. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, we know he wasn't in Oklahoma because you can't be content in the state of Oklahoma, all right? (laughs) That's pretty. I, I know both how to face humble circumstances and how to have abundance. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned the secret both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and suffer need. And that is where he says in that context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, so we, we all love Philippians 4.13. Man, Tim Tebow putting it on his eye black, all that. Yeah, it's a great, great verse of scripture. But what's Paul saying? I can be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content no matter what is happening around me, no matter what I lack, no matter what I don't have, because of Christ's strength. Now, he says two times, I had to learn to be content. It means I wasn't content, but I, had, I have learned to become so. He also writes earlier in the book of Romans that, Uh, covetousness was the one commandment that he could not keep. Thou shalt not covet. But in Christ, he found riches that strengthened his soul when his body was going without. And so contrary to what some people might say or believe, contentment will not come to you and I easily or naturally. It has to be learned. 
It's a state of heart and mind we really cannot achieve on our own. We have to desperately ask God in prayer, Lord, please give me contentment. Ecclesiastes chapter five, the apostle uh, Solomon wrote this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot in life and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. We can never own enough things, ever have it so good that it will cause us to be content. There's really no natural explanation for contentment. And when you see it in somebody's life, you have to say, that's a work of God. It's the gift of God. And I have to tell you, honestly, I was thinking a lot about this, you know, as I've been preparing and stuff. You know, like last night, Millie and I, we sat down for dinner and uh, Melanie had some soup that one of our kids had made, you know, just for the holidays. And, and we pulled it out of the freezer, you know, we were eating it. And, and I said, uh, you know, this would be a lot better if, you know. And she said, have you noticed how often you do that? It's always like something could be a little bit better. And, you know, I, got, I thought about it. You know, we kind of joked about it. You know, she kind of laughed. She wasn't being mean or anything like that. I don't think she was. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Cut me to the heart, you know. But, you know, I've, I've got to be honest with y'all. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like the Holy Spirit just used, it's a real simple little thing, but, but I, and I'm working on this, talking about this, and it's like contentment is hard for me. It's really, really hard. It's like, hey, let's go over the next hill. Let's do the next thing. Let's add. Let's, let's do this. Let's do that. Contentment has been a big, big struggle for me for a long, long time. And I'll just this morning, I was kind of wrestling with, you know, just how much energy, emotional energy, I've wasted over so many years being so discontent, discontent. So I'm asking the Lord, tell me, be more content. Another thing we have to do is we have to learn what it means to live for more, to live for more. Man, Jim Carrey has been a big part of pop culture for decades. And man, he's an American success story. He had a very difficult childhood. He grew up in poverty. He dropped out of high school on his 16th birthday. He had to do it to support his family. And he worked in factories and other menial jobs. And he dreamed of being rich one day. And so he ventured off into acting. And back in 1985, he was 23 years old. He couldn't find work. And he wrote himself, as kind of a motivational tool, he wrote himself a $10 million check. And he dated it 10 years in the future okay, 1995, and he put in the memo line for acting services rendered. And he carried that check in his wallet everywhere he went to motivate himself, to keep himself going, because he's like, yeah, I'm going to be rich someday. And he did it. In 1995, he signed a contract for a movie that was going to pay him $10 million. He got paid $20 million to to play the Grinch, all right? He made a lot of money. His net worth today is $200 million. Isn't that incredible? A few years ago, he was interviewed and he said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Wow. And I think a lot of you might be aware, he's had some really severe mental and emotional struggles the last few years. It's been in the news. And so an American success story, you know, you kind of wonder, how can you and I be truly successful? We have to be honest enough to admit that material things and possessions can't get us there. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Jesus, uh, Jesus understood there's this maddening paradox between money and material things and success or the good life. The more you have, the less effective it is at bringing you joy. And that's why Jesus always exhorted you and I again and again and again to live for more. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, isn't life more than food? Isn't life more than your body more than clothing? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. What Jesus is saying is that the people who are far from God, their whole life centers around competition. He who dies with the most toys wins. And he's saying, no, but people who are near to God, their life centers around contentment. And he who dies with the most poise wins. You know, I was playing football. Things would get really heated. There'd be penalties and, you know, fouls and things like that. And games would get rough. And the coach would be saying, keep your poise, keep your poise. Kind of knew what that meant, but I didn't really ever look it up, right? I looked it up this week. It means to have a composed, calm manner, to be in control of your emotions. And listen to this, to be in control of your passions. That's what it means to have poise. And notice that question Jesus asks, isn't life more? Isn't life more? A truly profound question. You see, what Jesus is trying to say here to us is that as followers of Jesus, we don't, we don't simply restrain ourselves from pursuing material things. Like, I want nothing. No, I mean, some people in the Bible were very wealthy. All right, that's Buddhism. You know, when you're trying to totally restrain yourselves from all material wants. But the followers of Jesus, we don't restrain ourselves from material possessions, but we replace the pursuit of material possessions with something else. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How do you know if you're seeking God's kingdom first? Thank you so much for being at church on a cold morning. You're doing that very well today. Thank you for that. But speaking of, you know, all of us have cars out here in the parking lot. And almost, almost every car has a spare tire. You know, a spare tire is kind of out of sight. It's kind of out of mind until you have to have it. And aren't you glad it's there when you need it, all right? When all else fails, you kind of pull the spare tire out from underneath your car or out of the back, and you put the spare on the car. And then what do you do? You take the flat tire off, you put the spare on, and you put faith in the spare, all right? You depend on the spare, to get you where you want to go. And so for so many Christians, God is like a spare tire, out of sight, out of mind, until you just have to have it. And then when all else fails, you kind of pull God out from underneath everything else in your life and you put the spare on your life. And then and only then do you put your faith and your trust in God to get you where you want to go. And notice the premise to the promise that Jesus makes here. Seek him first, and then all of your needs will be met. Align yourself with God's kingdom, with his plans, his principles, his perspectives. And then something incredible takes place. Your heavenly father takes responsibility for meeting all of your needs because you're showing maturity as a child of God when you live for more. And so sadly, far too many believers are seeking second the kingdom of God and his righteousness and take a little bit of 
little bit of God and mix it with a lot of the world and try to live by that. And God is in second place and they find themselves consumed with living for less instead of living for more. And God's desire is that we would be consumed with living for more. First John chapter two, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but for these impulses are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God, seeks him first, will live forever. Number two, number three, I'm sorry, is uh, learn the necessities of life. Y'all remember that movie Jungle Book? Remember Baloo, the bear? You know, the bear necessities? Remember him? I loved him. He was awesome. He's my favorite character, uh, probably of all Disney characters. He was great. You know, back in 1890, there was a university professor who went around the country. He was asking Americans, what do you truly want? And he made a list and he kind of compiled it all together. And he kind of said, on average, most Americans want about 72 things. That was in 1890. He then asked them to narrow down their list. Like, what are the bare necessities? What are things you absolutely cannot live without? And in 1890, Americans thought there were 18 basic things, bare necessities, that people needed just to survive. Well, then in the same university, about 60 years later in 1950, another professor saw this research and he thought to himself, huh, I wonder what people would think today, all right? So he asked Americans all around the country in 1950 what they truly wanted. In 1890, it had been 72 things. In 1950, it was 496. He then asked Americans in the 1950s to narrow their list down to the bare basics. What are the bare necessities you have to have to survive? In 1890, it had been 18 things. In 1950, it was 96 things. Wow. Now, I know if it were done today in 2024, like what are your bare necessities? There were 96 back then. It'd be 99 today because we'd say, I need a cell phone, I need a laptop, and I need a Stanley Cup. Okay, I've got to have that. (laughs) Why does the number of our perceived needs grow over time? Our struggle is sometimes what we want gets confused with what we need. I am so, so guilty of this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul said this, true godliness with contentment itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything when we leave it. And look at this line here. This challenges me so much. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. You know, when God uh, released the Israelites from captivity in Egypt, and they went through the wilderness. They were there for 40 years. What did, my, what did God make sure they had every day? You know, wasn't, you know, jacuzzi, things like that. It was, they had enough food, manna, and their clothes never wore out. They had food and clothing every day. And their fatherly, their father, the fatherly disposal was saying, that's enough. And I'll be the first to admit, I have a hard time with this scripture. Just food and clothing? But the challenge really forces you and me to really think about, what do I really need? Over and over again, the Bible tells us that our Father in heaven, that he is faithful to supply our needs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul was exhorting the Corinthians to be generous. It was a very, very, very wealthy city. He was exhorting them to be generous. And he said, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, 
having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He's like, don't worry about living generously because God is going to meet your needs in the process. And I just want to think about this. If we want it, but we don't have it, it's likely because our Father in heaven knows that we don't need it. Contentment allows God to determine your needs. He may, he may be keeping something from you, from me, because it, he knows if I give this to them, it's going to stunt their growth, their spiritual growth. There are two ways I've learned to know what your needs are not, what they are not. I don't always know what my needs are, but I know how to know what they are not. Number one is my neighbors, okay? One of my neighbors is here today. She's a really sweet lady, but if we want to be content, we have to be willing to fearlessly examine our hearts in this matter. Do I want much of what I want because someone else got it first? Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4, why do people work so hard? I saw people try to succeed to be better than other people. They do this because they're jealous. They don't want other people to have more than they have. This is senseless. It's like trying to catch the wind. You know, comparison, comparison. It's a terrible, terrible habit. Determining your worth and your value based upon what others perceive of you, what other people think of you. And if you know Christ as your savior, your worth is based upon what God has done to make you his own. God paid for you with the blood and the body of his one and only son. That means you are priceless to him and you need never compare yourself to anyone else or measure your worth, your significance or your value by anyone else's estimation of you. God's estimation alone is all that matters. So never look at your neighbors to determine what you need or don't need. And the other one's advertisers. You know, the average American gets 3,000 advertising messages every day. 3,000. That blows me away. 3,000 times a day, someone is telling you that the things you have aren't good enough. You need more. Advertisers manipulate our emotions. If you don't have our product, your life is going to suffer. You won't be as popular. You won't be as beautiful. You won't be as successful. You won't be as secure. You deserve luxury. You've earned comfort. You need the very best. The very essence of advertising is to disturb the peace, your peace. All right, that's what it's all about, disturbing your peace. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't be anxious about anything. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the people far from God, they seek all these things, but your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all. Jesus was emphatic. Don't be worried or anxious about what you're going to wear, uh, what you're going to eat. And the strategy of advertising is be anxious at all times about what you're eating or what you're wearing. All right, we have to get rid of that and just say no to that. All right. Number three, love what you have. Love what you have. I'm sorry, number four. You know, Melanie and, uh, and uh, her sister got her dad. Uh, his name is Leon. He's 86, going on 87 he grew up out near Shamrock. They got him a neat gift. And uh, it's basically this process where this company is going to email him once a week and they ask him a question, ask him to record it, you know, write down a long answer and he sends it back to the company and they're going to take everything he writes and they're going to put it into a book. And so the book will be passed down in our family from here on out. And I'm very excited about it, you know? And uh, the question last, or uh, two weeks ago was, what was your favorite pet? And so we were sitting around talking about it. And uh, he told us that 
he, uh, when he was a little boy, he found a dog and he brought this dog home. And I can't remember the dog's name now, but he still remembers the dog's name. You know, it's been like 80 years and he still remembers the dog. And the dog discovered their chicken coop and went in there, began busting the eggs and began eating the eggs. And so his dad had to kill the dog. But you know, they couldn't afford to lose any eggs because my father-in-law grew up, there were 11 children and two parents in a house that generously was 700 square feet. I've seen it. It's amazing. So 13 people in about 700 square feet, you know, taking a bath in a hot, in a tub, you know, a metal tub out on the front porch, you know, things like that. The typical American adult has twice the purchasing power that his grandparents, his or her grandparents enjoyed back in 1960. The typical American home is more than twice as large as the homes that were being purchased in the 1960s. You know, America ranks number one in the world by far in material possessions, and yet we rank number 16 in happiness. And Americans who are clinically depressed has increased tenfold since World War II, and suicide is now our number two leading cause of death. And polls show, listen to this, polls show Americans believe the country is worse off and that our grandparents had it better than we do. Isn't that amazing? Melanie's dad had to shoot his dog because the dog was getting in the egg coop. They couldn't afford to lose one egg. It's a huge paradox. We've gotten the good life that our grandparents only dreamed of and we feel worse for it. Proverbs 13, 25. A just man eats and fills his soul, but the stomach, or that, that's a metaphor for the inmost depths. You might say the heart or the soul of wicked men is unable to be filled. Solomon is not saying that a wicked person can't get their, their fill at Golden Corral. Okay, that's not what he's trying to say. He means that the person who is just, the person who loves truth, who's restrained, has a satisfied soul, is in control of their appetites. That person, that person eats and fills his soul. But the wicked who lives for his own pleasure, his appetites is never satisfied, perpetually hungry for more. You know, when you consistently notice the economic status of your neighbors, other people around you, do you often think about the house, the clothes, the cars, the vacations? Someone else has it, you don't. What's the answer? Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude for what we have. It may sound like a cliched way to achieve happiness, but it truly does work, ladies and gentlemen. There's an abundance of research being done right now at places like Harvard and Princeton showing that gratitude it improves your brain chemistry and your body chemistry. It makes you stronger. You feel better. When we focus on what we lack, we feel like failures. We feel cheated by life. Gratitude, you're training your mind to focus on the abundance that's come into your life rather than what is lacking. Appreciation for the people in your life, for the things in your life, caused you to realize how much you have. Small things like a roof over your head. Aren't you so grateful to be here today worshiping in this beautiful room it's warm, it's well lit, et cetera, et cetera? millions, perhaps even billions of Christians around the world do not have what we have here this morning. Four out of 10 people in the world do not get enough calories on a daily basis, vitamins and minerals to remain healthy. Yet Americans eat on average five times a day and we get too many calories. 
half the world's population, four billion people live under high water stress. They live under the constant threat of not being able to have drinking water. You and I probably had a hot shower this morning or last night, and they don't even think about bathing. They're just trying to get some water to drink. Love what you have. Be grateful. And you'll find yourself becoming more and more content. That gracious frame of spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Be unceasing in prayer. Thank God in everything, no matter what the circumstances may be. For this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. Why? When you look around you, you count your blessings. You're grateful to God. You give thanks to God. It changes you profoundly at a deep level. And that, that, that bitter, terrible, empty attitude of covetousness, it begins to drain out of your heart. And that sweet, gracious frame of mind and spirit called contentment begins to fill in. There's a speaker I got to hear a couple years ago named John Gordon. He said this in the speech he gave, abundance will flow into our life when gratitude flows out of our heart. Isn't that so good? There's an anonymous poem I want to conclude with today. We don't know who it was written by, but we do know it was written by a 14-year-old boy. Listen to this, so wise. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was the winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. Then it was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. Then I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. Then I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without physical limitations. And then, then my life was over and I never got what I wanted. Mm. Contentment, so powerful in our lives, so important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that you have been so, so good to us. And Lord, I know there are people in here today who are struggling mightily, Father, with things that I can't begin to imagine. And Father, there is a, there's a lack in their life. There's a, there's a void in their life today, Father, because someone is missing or something is missing. And so, Lord, I just ask you today in the, in the strong name of Jesus that they would be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens them, that they would be able to learn what it means to be content today, starting today. And so, Father, I pray that for all of us here today. I just pray, Lord, that here at the corner of Florida and Tristram, Lord, that there would be a people who meet here on Sunday mornings and, and throughout the week, Father, whom it could be said are a contented people. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that, that sweet and gracious work in our deepest heart today to be content. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for this warm, beautiful building here today, Lord. We're so grateful for it. We're so grateful. And Lord, for our other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have that here today, what we are enjoying today, Lord, would you please provide it out of the abundance of your riches. Thank you, Father, that you meet our needs out of your riches and glory. In Jesus' name.